0: Welcome to episode 25 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I am your host, Trey Whetstone, coming here from Columbus, Ohio, and this episode is special and important for a couple of reasons. First off, is the day from the day this one releases, tomorrow, October 11th, will be the one year anniversary of the first episode of Screaming Through the Ages. So that's exciting that the podcast has made it a year. I want to thank everyone for helping me make the first year a success, and anyone who listened or shared or anything like that, I really do appreciate it. Otherwise, I'm just some dude out here talking into a microphone on the internet, so I really appreciate the interaction and the people that I've met through this. And it's also special because this is October, and I am into my weekly October episodes that are coming out here this month. And this one kicks off the two-parter for the Screaming Through the Ages giallo extravaganza. This is very important. I hope that, you know, on October 31st, you all have an amazing giallo and this is just a genre that has been so close to my heart for such a long time. really, when I was getting into horror, giallos were there in some form, and I've You know, I haven't watched an extensive list of these. At the time I'm recording these episodes, I've seen around between 50 and 60 giallos. Out of probably, you know, a couple hundred of them. Now, not all of those are available right now, but it does seem they keep unearthing more of these as the years go on. I don't think giallos are for everyone, so this is probably three set of episodes in a row where the topic I'm... Discussing isn't necessarily for everyone, but that's okay. If you're here listening, if you've never watched a Giallo, I hope you get some good recommendations out of these episodes. If you're a diehard Giallo fan, I hope that you love going through the timeline and history of Giallos with me, and if you have seen Giallos and just don't like them in general, then I'm glad that you're still here and sticking this out. So these episodes are going to be structured very differently than normal. I wanted to put this together similar to how In Search of Darkness does it with their documentary style. So, one component of this is going to be going year by year. Now, obviously, for the first several years that Giallos were around, there aren't as many releases. So, we'll be covering those in like a pre-Giallo craze style. But after that, I want to go down year by year and just, I have list made up of the Giallos that came out. These may not be all extensive, but it's what I could find. So that's one component in how we're going to build the history going forward. There's also a little bit of prehistory to get into, and then some other pieces to weave in and out with certain topics about the genre. Um, Some of the ones that I've watched for the first time in these last couple weeks, those will be getting thrown in as we go through the years. And then, of course, feedback from those who have sent in voicemails or recordings over here to the podcast. Speaking of, there is still time to get some of those in for the next episode. I will still be accepting any of those calls you want to get in for the rest of this week to be able to place into the second part of this Giallo series. And if you join in on that, you may just be eligible to win a giallo blu-ray from arrow video i have a couple of those that i'm going to give out so stay tuned to twitter to see how you could be entered for the other one as well there will be another piece to that contest but i'm giving out a pair of Aero video giallo releases on blu-ray to celebrate october and to celebrate giallos as well now without further ado Let's get in to a little side segment here before I start, and this one's going to cover how I got into giallos and what my start was. First off, I should probably clarify, yes, I know I think the proper term is gialli, but for the most part I will be calling these giallos when I'm talking about the plural. But from my understanding, I think both are acceptable, so please no corrections on that part. So my start into giallos, I don't know if I've told this on this show before, but I've definitely told it on other ones, that my start into horror movies, I watched very few when I was younger. I didn't, you know, wasn't allowed to watch a whole lot. I caught someone on TV here and there, and they really scared me. So I was very much a late bloomer into the horror genre, which didn't start until later in college and when I was out of college. When I was out of college and working, I would have these weekends where I would just watch, and it, I think it was usually exclusively in October, but I would pretty much watch horror movies non-stop for the entire weekend, really. I would have it scheduled out. I'm watching this one, and then this one, and then this one, back to back to back, and I used this to catch up on a lot of the cult classics. I'd already seen a lot of the major horror movies like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, and Things like that. But this was for digging a little deeper. And from where I am now today, like this is nowhere near deep. But things like From Beyond and even like Reanimator and things like that. Just cult classics that I had always heard about and wanted to see. Well, one that always caught my interest was Suspiria. Because there was a show on Bravo... That ran sometime in the mid 2000s, and it was called the Hundred Scariest Movie Moments, I believe. And within that, the thing that scared me—it wasn't the actual hanging scene from Suspiria that they showed when Suspiria came up. It was the trailer from Suspiria that slowly had a skeletal head turning around, and you know, from the back, it was just you're seeing what looked like a woman brushing her hair and then it turns around as this song is going, this little poem in there is going sour, and you see just a skull. And that freaked me out. So I was always curious about Suspiria, even though that wasn't something I typically heard of from the horror people that I knew. So Suspiria was definitely something I had to rush to see, and that was on the top of my list. Well, once I had watched Suspiria and loved it, and, you know, it's currently one of my top three favorite horror movies of all time. I started looking into what else this guy had done, what else this Argento guy had done, and that would lead me to, I believe the first other two that I watched were Deep Red and Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And I just loved both of those movies. Well, I loved Deep Red. I liked Bird with a Crystal Plumage, but my appreciation for that one has grown over the years. And I definitely saw both of those during those Kind of binges. Those watches would have been shortly followed by Opera and Phenomena, and I think Tenebra as well. And I was just in it from there. I would go and seek out Blood and Black Lace, and Bay of Blood, and then I would learn what a giallo actually was, and get even deeper into it with things like What Have You Done to Solange, and The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, and A Blade in the Dark, and other movies like that. At that point, I was hooked, and dove in deeper and deeper to giallos and um, still continue to do today with a giallo watch list that is ever-expanding. I'm not sure what it was that drew me into them, but I've always liked these weird, violent murder mysteries. And the thing about giallos are they're not really alike. And I'll get into that when we're talking a little bit about the films and the structure of them. But there's so much variety in giallos, and from one to the next, you can have a completely different experience watching, you know, five different giallos. You could have a completely different experience for all five. It's very possible. There are different type of movies that can exist within the giallo subgenre. So that's basically how I started. You know, it was Argento, and then Bava, and then probably some Martino stuff, but there were some other weird one-offs that I heard were good, like... Again, Solange and the Red Queen and those kind of things that were peppered in there as well. And now it's just full-on, check out whatever I can get my hands on. So that's where I got my start, and I've been hooked ever since. And tying that back in, you know, I'd like to hear from you on as far as, like, where did you get your start in the Giallos? What was the first movie that did it? How did you get into them and stuff like that? That's where you can send in a voicemail or just hit me up on social media, and I'll include your feedback on the next episode. Because it's not exactly a, I guess I wouldn't say it doesn't have the wide appeal as something like slashers do within the horror genre. And even those aren't for everybody. There's still plenty of people who just don't like slashers. So I'm just very curious to hear how people got into it and where they went from there. And maybe who or what they used as guides as far as like what to watch as things went along. I think I would just start by searching, you know, top giallos, best giallos, things like that. And then it's devolved into watching pretty much everything. So with that, I want to move into the first response from listeners that I got. And that is from the boys over at Monsters and the Mosh Pit, where Greg is introducing Dave to the Giallo Torso for the first time. And that is his first Giallo. So... I want to throw that in here now. It's a little long, but it's really fun to listen to those two. It's almost like a mini podcast here within a podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and start that now, and then I'll see you on the other side.
1: Horns up and hide the bodies. It's Greg from Monsters and the Mosh Pit, and I'm here with Dave. Dave, I'm, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Greg? Uh, I'm great. And I just want to say hello to the Screaming Through the Ages podcast family. This is I am your substitute professor today. Unfortunately, Trey could not be with us today, so Dave and I are going to talk giallos. Yes. Dave, do you know what a giallo is? I do now. Okay. So if you're not familiar with our format from the Screaming Through the Ages listeners, our format is I'm a horror buff. Myself and our other co-host, Dustin, are both huge horror buffs. And then Dave (laughs) and Andy, for the most part, Dustin's brother. But Dave specifically is a horror noob. Like hardcore horror newbie knows nothing about horror for the most part,
2: right? Correct. I've seen very little of the kind of backbone bread and butter horror classics. I'm getting there, but
3: yeah,
1: I mean, and you've watched some other random horror on your own even. Yep. So I've been proud of you. I lately. just watched
2: Leprechaun for the first time this past week,
1: which was random. So yep. proud of you. But what we're talking about is something far, far, far away from Leprechaun. Cause damn, okay will smith damn our podcast is typically a little bit more uh extreme uh as far as the language goes so we're gonna tone it down a bit for trey so he doesn't have to go through and edit a bunch of uh bleeps and stuff into this (laughs) because uh we we are typically a little bit more we'll say aggressively charged (laughs) at each other Dave makes me upset sometimes. Yeah,
2: Greg actually threw a pin at me at uh, Mach 2 last episode, yeah. and about hit me in the eye.
1: Yeah, so. I really wanted to hit him, and at the same time, as I was throwing, I was like, man, if I hit him in the eye, it would be great for a Fulci movie, but not so great for my pool table that we podcast on. <laughs> so Check <it>. that out. <laughs> Which, again, this is Greg and Dave from Monsters in the Mosh Pit, but again, let's get into Giallo. So, Dave, giallo is the Italian term designated for mystery, fiction, and thrillers. Okay? Okay. So, giallo is the word for yellow. Which I learned that today, too. You did. You would learned that. So you said giallo.
2: I thought well, I was thinking gelato, which is the
1: ice creamy okay. yogurt. My last name is Bazelli. I'm from a town in Ohio that is pretty much all Italian. <laughs> so, I love me some gelato. <sighs> Some, However, some, some cannolis. Oh, yeah, I can, I can I can eat a bunch of cannolis, dude. Don't get me on cannolis. They're my favorite uh, pastry. Anyway, we have a lot of <laughs> tangents on our show as well, as you can tell. Um, we're idiots. Okay. We are. <laughs> However, Dave, back to giallo. So giallo is Italian for yellow. We, we learned that earlier today. The reason why this genre of movies comes up and is called giallos is because a lot of them are based off of crime novels that were written back in, like, the... Like early 20th century, okay. Okay. But these crime novels all had a similar cover to them, and the covers were a yellow cover with a image on, like in a circular form on the cover. So the Italian people just started calling them giallos because they were yellow. Okay. It reminds
2: me of the Italian job. I think it had a yellow with a black and. It did. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Although the Italian job wasn't so much a mystery because you kind of knew what was happening throughout the Italian had many Coopers bank heist. <laughs> Again, this is what I deal with yeah. on our show. <laughs> wow. I don't know horror, but
2: I know a ton of random quotes
1: that I throw true? in constantly. Yeah, if you ever want to talk to somebody in random movie quotes and have a whole <laughs> conversation, Dave's your guy. Yeah. It's not horror for Sports, <laughs> so yeah. Well, oh man, don't get us started on sports. Dave knows nothing on that subject. I love cruise ball. <laughs> All right, so today we decided that because Dave had, had never seen a giallo and we were going to watch a giallo and then record this, it was kind of the plan. So it was fresh in our minds. And my favorite giallo is Deep Red, but that's a longer one, okay? So we went with what, Dave? Uh, the torso. Just Torso, Porso, but Yes, yes. <laughs> this is a Sergio Martino film, and it's also another great classic. And one of the things I like about this one is it's kind of a precursor to Slashers, too. So not only was I able to introduce you to a giallo, which was cool, we were also able to introduce you to one of the precursors to Slashers, like Michael Myers and so on. How did you like the movie? Like, what was your first impressions?
2: Well, of course, this movie was the... It wasn't the dub one, it was just the... It was in Italian with the English subtitles. crash Doesn't yeah. bother Correct. me. So yeah, it it was very I mean you definitely tell it had the seventies style vibe, everything, but overall it was enjoyable. I liked it.
1: A lot of the big themes of Giallo are present in torso, right? So we have a a killer that is going around killing obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but this killer is usually He's doing his thing. Yeah, but they're usually depicted in a certain way in this era. So you have a lot of black leather, leather the black leather gloves, a lot of shots of the leather gloves for some reason. The Italians were very, very keen on that shot of the leather gloves grabbing something or twisting a door handle.
2: Well, I love it. It's not, not like a leather work glove. It's like a sporty like, like Italian a, driving glove. Yeah, like, have like the a, like laced back on them. Like
1: a can you them. imagine them driving like a Ferrari or something, <laughs> but they weren't in this movie at all? No. <laughs> like, Volkswagen Beetle. So, which is pretty funny, but at the same time. It's, but that that was a lot of that depiction that you got. Uh, and again, this is, uh, I think uh, Torso was 1972. And when you think of Jalas, they kind of peaked in popularity. Is that the right word? Yes, popularity. popularity okay. Yes. Uh, they kind of peaked in that 19 late 1960s to, to mid-1970s time frame. They went on. they still actually still make similar type Giallo movies. Um, We even watched, what was it? uh, Contagion. Didn't I compare Contagion to Giallo? I think talking about basically the noir aspect of it. That's one of the things Giallos have is that noir aspect to things. Which, obviously, I've only seen one so far that I know of. And
2: even watching that with like, of course, we'll probably, I guess, maybe get into it. The scenes where the killer just kind of appears in the swamp. And he just kind of stands there eerie. That has a lot of ties into the later eighties slashers. Was it Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers? They just kind of appear, and you're like, "Oh fuck!" And everybody's freaking out. They're just standing there. They're not doing anything. They're not chasing you. They're just kind of standing. That's that's the old shit
1: moment. Yeah, and it was kind of almost like so you get kind of that those moments of almost supernatural esque type feeling. But the thing with are is they were they were not supernatural in a sense of like the killer being something that it wasn't what was a lot of that happened with them was a lot of red herrings so just like in torso do you know what a red herring is because i just said it and it kind of gave me a weird look
2: i, I laughed around the uh
1: the red herring is a term used for fishing If, if the
2: herring fish turns red it's a sign of being it was
1: Wait, you don't know fishing since when do you know fishing? i know terminology i've been friends with you for like what, 11 years now? I don't think we've ever gone fishing together. Well, it's your fault. I go fishing all the time.
2: Well, invite me next time. I probably won't still. Probably not. Okay. But no, the fish would be
1: red and it was a red herring because it was like a distraction or ploy of a deceit. Well, which is exactly what a red herring means in film. Yeah, boom. Wow. <laughs> that was actually an intelligent <laughs> comment. Proud of you. I'm not an idiot.
2: I'm just not diverse in horror movies. That's debatable. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs>
1: so i don't even remember what we were talking about but that was pretty funny um i think what we were talking about was the fact that there was a lot of red herrings in torso and one of those being Ste- stefano in the movie right yeah, Stefano. stefano ends up being the one we're rooting for the whole time to be the killer right we just were pretty much as an audience like you're the killer right and yeah. we're gonna spoil torso a little bit here if you haven't seen the movie, you're like yeah. Dave... Spoiler: Fifty years ago, if you haven't seen this, <laughs> literally came out fifty years ago. Wow, right? I know that's kind of weird, right? Mm-hmm. And you just watched it today for the first time. So how do you think that makes me feel having watched <laughs> this when I was probably in my mid-teens? Because I was a weird kid. I was a little scandalous for your teenage years. <laughs> well, I mean, I had again. This is coming from the guy that watched *Cannibal Holocaust* when he was like six. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah torso wasn't so bad at that point but i you had only, to re- you only adopted the darkness <laughs> <laughs> right right was, i was born in it yeah. made I, was, in I, was, I, was, I was raised raised by it anyway so back to stefano and the fact that he is probably the most prevalent red herring throughout the whole movie right we do get a couple other things like you get one scene of belloc the the mute uh one they get to the villa He's outside the window and they, they kind of play it off as he's the killer. Then he sees the killer and the killer kills Belloc, which is unfortunate because I kind of like Belloc. I was really yeah, for him. Yeah, he
2: got thrown down the well and he just kind of, that was it. There was no like...
1: Yeah, they poison the well, <laughs> which is a great band as well. I don't know if I ever told you to listen to Poison the Well, but Poison the Well is pretty good. I was
2: band waiting band. for the old lady to pull up the bucket of water and have a tainted of blood and think it was some kind of second coming or something.
1: You never watched The Walking Dead, did you? No. There's a, the Walking Dead has a, they call it the, uh, I think they call it the floater or the well, the well walker. <laughs> the floater, know, it sounds like a bad Saturday night in the bathroom. Basically there's this zombie that fell into the well and he's giant with like, he's swelled up with water. <laughs> and they try to pull him up and they get him just up to the crest of the well and he splits in half and falls half of him falls back down. It's like Augustus well. Glump and uh, pretty much Charlie, Charlie, Charlie <laughs> <in> the back where you get stuck on the tube. Yeah, except for <laughs> if you imagine instead of the thump you get a split <laughs> and a fall back down. Wow, this is not about Jallos at all. Oh, it's it's still entertaining. Yeah, but this is this is what you get with us. Sorry guys. So Dave, what how did you really think how did you really think? That's not great grammar, is it? Um What'd what you think? What did you feel about the, the red herrings though? Like tell me a little bit about what kind of what your thought process was. Because this is a big a big point of Jallos. is they have to have red herrings and they have to make sense in the story. If they don't make sense in the story, then it's not it's still a jallo, but the actual like old school Jallo writers won't take it as seriously.
2: Yeah, the red herrings were definitely interesting. It definitely kinda kept you guessing. And like I said, it nothing was really a lie. It just, I, I don't know. It just kind of kept you guessing, but it made sense after you. Late as the movie progressed, the red herrings made sense. It was really, it, it was weird.
1: <laughs> that, that was that was great. That was great. Uh, no, I, tr- I kind of
2: explained. It's it, it's kind of funny, It's almost like Scooby Doo ish. You kind of had the 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 weird person you're trying to catch, and you have the group running around and. All these little different things, distracting. You just so, see little clues. Is this
1: a world's first Scooby-Doo to Yolo? Maybe.
2: <laughs> and at the end of the movie, it's they finally reveal who the masked person was. <laughs> Franz
1: Friends. Friends. Yes. Friends says, I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you crazy kids. <laughs> and, but, I mean, he's not wrong. Right? You're not Maybe. wrong.
2: And even the Scooby-Doo kids series had a red herring. Remember that? No, I don't remember no. that. No, okay. Anyway, <laughs> way off topic.
1: Wasn't all Scooby-Doo kids
2: No, there was an adult, adult one in the '70s, and there was like a '90s kid version. They were like
1: kids, kids. Oh, like they were drawn as kids. Yeah. Well, the first one was animated too. Some of the other elements of Giallo's typically are like eroticism. Yeah, there was a lot of, lot of um, skin. Yeah, that's why I I think when we started the movie, I said the Italians like to put a lot of skin in the game. (laughs) Yeah, literally, (laughs)
2: figuratively, and. Literally, but uh, no, it it definitely had some uh, risque moments, but nothing too on PG thirteen. But yeah, uh, you know, maybe R. It's probably more
1: R. Yeah, I mean, I- <laughs> so I mean, I think when you look at a a giallo or, or a movie from the seventies, let's say, uh, until you get to like seventy four, with maybe
3: uh,
1: I'm trying to think maybe like Last House on the Left was that to me is an R. Like that's a hard R. Last House on the Left. This is even though there's a lot of nudity in this. And there's some blood. It doesn't really feel. There's very little blood. I mean, it's it's and it's very. <laughs>
2: yeah, the special effects uh, from <laughs> 1973 it was very. Uh, it went from person to obviously wax figurine. You know? Yeah, but the, again, uh, scarf it's guy. it's. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> the scarf guy gets his head smashed by the car bumper, and it flattens like a football, and then it blows back up and brings. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of funny. But it wasn't... They're not gory, though. It was kind of... there was You saw a little bit of blood dripping, but there was no, like... It wasn't, like, 80s where you saw a big gash. It wasn't the yeah. Nightmare or the Blood
1: Volcano. Yeah, you, didn't, the, have, the you didn't have a Johnny Depp moment or anything yeah. like that. But it was still... It was still tension, right? Yeah. Because that's the other real big part of Jalos to me. Maybe not necessarily, like, as a, a big scope or anything, but I always key on the tension that it built. And, like, Torso, for example, the whole... What maybe the last fifteen minutes of it or so? Well, maybe not the last fifteen minutes. We'll say about fifteen minutes before the last ten minutes. Okay, so the last third we'll call it is a lot of quiet buildup of tension. There's not a lot of dialogue. No,
2: but it's, it's it has all that more modern kind of the killers in the house. You're hiding. It's, it's very it's very suspenseful. I guess would be a good word to use there, and. It's it's the the damage of the two people not interacting, but yet in the same plane for You know, what I mean, they're 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 together. But yeah, they're trying to hide and they're yeah. playing that
1: cat mouse game. Well, you were very. So Dave's a talker during movies. <laughs> you were very talkative in the last third of this movie. Like you were <laughs> like, well, now he's going to see you because you left your you left your <laughs> shoes on the stairs. I can't believe you did that. Now he knows you're there. And why is he taking them out one by one? I don't understand why he's sawing them up and taking them out one by one. Is he trying to build his own torso? What's he doing? Like, <laughs> yeah, this is probably the most talkative I've, I've heard you because I watch a lot of movies with you. Well, I suck at following
2: plots, but I'm really good at pointing out like plot holes if that make sense. Like, well, sometimes, but
1: like <laughs> I was gonna say, are like, you?
2: <laughs> it's obvious when she leaves the shoes there and then she walks up the stairs and then the shoes are still sitting in focus. The shoes are a big point. So obviously that's going to cause her to be fucked. Yeah, again, sorry. Trey, sorry. Caused her to be uh, found later, you
1: know. <laughs> yeah, because she actually doesn't have that happen to her in this movie. She doesn't have uh, intercourse in the movie. So maybe that's why she survives, because <laughs> the other ones did. Well, except for Danny. Danny didn't, did she? I don't remember Danny ever getting with anybody, because she was so pissed off at uh, Steph- Stefano the whole time. Yes, so, uh, you know, the thing about Jallos is they're always throwing that little bit of uncomfortable slash. What's the word I'm looking for? Almost like innuendo, where, like, they even imply impl- implication. There you go. That's the word I was looking for implication. They even imply at some points that the, the uncle is a little creepy. Yeah, and was could weird, possibly weird. be weird. He was
2: creeping through the, through the crack of the door while his niece is getting dressed out of the shower. and It's yeah. like,
1: okay, well, what's so, so, those are the big plot points, I guess. And we use Torso as an example today, but those are the kind of the big plot points. And so, Dave, tell me what if you were to have a choice between watching another Giallo and watching, I don't know, something else <laughs> that I can't think <laughs> Thank of. Thank right you for the
2: descriptive, uh, Well, very-
1: I was trying to think of something like, because you can't really say 70s slasher because technically there really wasn't Seventy Slashers. Torso was kind of the introduction, again, to that. There's you know, a lot of debates about that. I find Torso very slasher-y, and I think Bill Van Vagel will agree with me, because he even said the same thing when I commented about it. But Bay of Blood's another one. Uh, well, I, I think I know what you're trying to ask, or what you're alluding to. Is okay. that,
2: would you rather watch this again, or something similar, or would you watch a more modern horror movie?
1: Yeah, would you like continue down the path of learning about Jollos? I will say I do like the kind of
2: suspense and the kind of you're trying okay, is that the killer, is that the killer? I, I do like the ambiguity of the killer or you're trying to figure out who they are throughout the whole movie. It's more entertaining than just a bloodbath. Okay. So I do like the plot points or the over just, you know, the straight up you know, more modern that's just a gore fest. Okay, cool. I, I think that's neat.
1: So for your first Giallo, what would you rate this film?
2: Torso. Um, I liked it. The language bearer being, of course, in Italian, made it a little bit hard to follow some of the stuff. It's always hard. Out <laughs> uh, of one to ten, I'd probably put it up around seven and a half,
1: maybe. Oh, okay. That's, that's that's higher than I expected for your first one.
2: I mean, just, again, it's hard to compare that to something. It's it's kind of its own realm. It so really It's is. hard to compare it to, I may watch ten more Jollos,
1: and I should give that one a nine. Yeah. Or it's like, well, hell, that one sucked compared to that. You know, so. Well, like, for me, Deep Red's like a 9.5 in Like It's the, the the bomb. And this one falls in at around an 8 for me. Uh, and that's really, I hate to say it this way because it sounds terrible for Giallo, but it's the slasher type <laughs> feel that I have for it that kind of gets me going. I hate to say it, but even the, the second or third time this was that I watched it, <laughs> like, some of the acting was atrocious. I will say. <laughs> well, and that's, that's, so that's one of the things that you'll actually come to, you either come to appreciate or you come to really hate it.
2: Are they all like that? They're all like that. They're like I said, and you got two guys in their thirties, you know, they come up, one's got a knife and the guy goes, ah! and just falls on the floor, <laughs> but zero <laughs> combativeness. That, that That's a little funny. <laughs> yeah.
1: That, I, well, I think I was watching deep red a couple months ago and uh, Jessica, my wife walked in and she goes, this is terrible. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What is terrible about it? And she was like, it's just over the top, and why are they talking like that? And I'm like, get out. Like, you're not allowed to be here anymore. <laughs> that's
2: so over the top, so that's what so alone appeared.
1: <laughs> yeah, hey, yo. yo so.
2: You're AG, you want to arm wrestle? <laughs> <laughs> over the top, yeah, that was yeah. good. I, I haven't I, seen that movie. It's on my, my to-do list.
1: You've never seen Over the Top? He drives a semi-truck. He does, and, I and he arm wrestles. Yes. To like... Hardcore 80s, like, <laughs> over-the-top music. Wow. wow. Again, sorry, we're off topic. So Giallo's totally um, one of my favorite genres. I, I really would love to talk a whole episode on this, but I don't want to to hijack Trey's, Trey's full episode on Giallo's. So I would just say that it was fun being the substitute professor. Uh, hopefully you've taken a little bit out of our side of the history books on <laughs> Giallo. And... You've got to hear what I deal with on a, on a weekly basis and on a daily basis with my friend Dave.
2: Yeah, if you want to hear this kind of conversation plus another person for four hours, uh, that's the
1: They're place. not four hours Well, long. We are not Land of the Creeps. We're uh, not Jay okay. of the Dead. We've like, had some push three, I think. But, <laughs> I think the highest we've ever gone is three. But uh, again, uh,
2: thank you for allowing me to be here, Trey. I appreciate it. This is my first kind of... Uh, guest appearance on anything so
1: yeah i wish trey could have been here with us but you know trey buddy we're looking out for you hopefully uh everything is going smooth with the new baby i had one it was all
2: fun i had a second one that was a horrible mistake <laughs> yeah i have one and i'm <laughs> great
1: I, I love both of them
2: but the first one was a ploy of Mother nature to get you to have a second one and, that's <laughs> way and, I, different.
1: and I could be totally wrong but uh,
3: <laughs> good luck man
1: but yeah so that's our segment man and uh yeah. Watch some JALOs. They're they're a lot of fun. Uh, there's a lot of people that are way more educated than I am out there, and Trey's one of them. Trey's the encyclopedia of knowledge, and I am the cleft notes. I like how you just went full Math and McConaughey there. Hey man, JALOs <laughs> are all right,
2: all right, all
1: right. Be, you got any JALOs in there? Be kind of cool if you did. <laughs> all right, guys. So one thing that we always say over here in uh, Monsters and the Mosh Pit is. If someone falls down in the pit, Dave,
0: what do we do? We pick them up.
1: Elbows up. Back to the mosh pit.
0: Alright, thanks so much Dave and Greg for sending that in. I really enjoyed listening to that. You know, people like to give Dave a hard time over there, but I think Dave did really well on that that segment. So You can check out Monsters and the Mosh Pit. I know they're at least on Spotify, because that's where I listen to them, and I'm assuming they're on Apple Podcast, but I will link their links in the show notes. And once again, thank you so much for calling in. I really love hearing about people's first experience with things. I try not to judge on the, you know, oh, you've never seen this, because I've had plenty of those in my life, especially coming later to this stuff. So I just really get excited when someone's watching something for the first time. Okay, well, with that in there, I'm going to move in to a little bit of the background and history of how Giallos came about. This is not going to be a fact or background history-heavy episode. There is some here at the beginning, for sure. On this one, I want to let the history unfold naturally as we go along. I mean, there's not really too much history to get into overall, like these movies certainly, but... I would rather do that through a timeline and a background and kind of tell you how the whole saga went along. How did giallos get started? Well, giallos originally were the name used for paperback books in Italy that had yellow covers. These books contained mystery stories from around the world, including the works of Agatha Christie and I believe of Edgar Wallace as well. So these were mystery thrillers from around the world that were sold in Italy in this form. There would be adaptations of some of these giallos as soon as 1943 with the film Ossession, which was essentially an adaptation of James M. Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice, which has been adapted several times throughout the years. However, the thing with these adaptations, they would be nothing like what we would come to see in the future with actual giallos. They were doing their own thing, so I don't think those really counted. Next up, Danish company Rialto Film released Der Frosch mit der Maske, or The Face of the Frog, in 1959. This film was a huge hit in Germany, and would kick off the trend of films called films or Crimmies. Its success even inspired Rialto to purchase the exclusive rights to almost all of thriller writer Edgar Wallace's novels. Between 1959 and 1972, there would be 39 film adaptations of Wallace's works in Germany under the Rialto panner. CCC Film Kunst wanted to cash in on the success and adapted nine of Brian Edgar Wallace's novels, who was the son of Edgar Wallace. Crimi were a staple of German films at the time, and have the same lasting legacy in Germany that giallos do in their home country of Italy. I believe I saw something where these are still running on TV today. So these are very important films to Germans. I mean, I'm not German, I can't speak to that, but that's the impression that I get. So that was the first wave. You had these Krimis in Germany, which were essentially adapting the Giallo stories, it's just they weren't necessarily Giallo. They had certain stylistic elements that maybe would come into play later on, I don't think it's much as the style, actually. Some of the naming conventions seem to line up a little bit with how Giallo's would be titled. But, I mean, these basically ran from 1959 into the early 70s. So, they were overlapping with Giallo at some point. Now, did people in Italy see these? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure some of them probably did, and this probably inspired some Italian filmmakers to make Giallo's. But either way, these were more of their own thing and deserved to be put in their own bucket and not thrown in with giallo. One more note before we get into things. The Swedish film Mannequin in Red by Arne Madison was released in 1958 and had much more in common with giallo in terms of body count and style than the Krimis did. However, it's not known if any Italian giallo directors had even watched this movie at the time it came out. So that goes into what I'm talking about with the Kremis. So Mannequin in Red is supposed to be pretty similar to what a Giallo would become, but did anyone see it? I certainly had not heard about it until researching this episode. And to go a step further, I don't see it available to watch anywhere right now, and that's including YouTube and Archive.org. So I don't even know how available that is or how you would even watch it, in the U.S. at least. So those all paved way for our very first official Giallo. And Giallo would come to be a staple in Italian film from the you know late 60s into the early to mid 70s. That would really be the sweet spot, as we'll see as we continue going along this. But it's pretty much widely accepted that The Girl Who Knew Too Much, or as you might know in America... The Evil Eye, was the first Giallo. As I go through this, I'm not necessarily going to be stopping and doing reviews on all kinds of movies and the bigger movies. I will talk about the important ones and how they influenced the genre as I move along. But just be forewarned, it's not going to be going into all the classics and favorites into depth. This one I think it's a little bit important. One, because... It's really underappreciated, or at least I feel like it's pretty underappreciated. And it was at the time as well. So if you're following along at home, this leads us into our early Giallo territory. Most of the 60s Giallo films, including Mario Bava's double billing of The Girl Who Knew Too Much and Blood in Black Lace.
3: A house of high fashion, a dazzling whirl of elegance, of exotic, extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. Blood and black lace. (coughs) Who is this shrouded, sadistic, sordid fiend who maims and murders? Why this bloodthirsty orgy, this holocaust of lives? Blood and black lace in bleeding color. A shattering, shivering, shocking experience.
0: So in 1963, like we were talking about earlier, Bava would inspire or ignite a genre, although this was not the one that was going to kick it into full gear. This would just kind of lay the groundwork. And he would do it with two different films. He would do it with The Girl Who Knew Too Much, and he would do it with Blood and Black Lace. Blood and Black Lace is definitely the more recognizable of the two. But The Girl Who Knew Too Much is no slouch, and I'm not going to talk about these in any deep detail because there eventually will be a pretty in-depth Mario Bava episode at some point. Though with that being said, I do want to talk about these movies and set them up a little bit for anyone who's not familiar. So The Girl Who Knew Too Much came out in 1963, was directed by Mario Bava, and the synopsis reads... A tourist witnesses a murder and finds herself caught up in a series of bloody killings. Yeah, I think that might be overselling it just a bit, but essentially you have in this film the leads of Letitia Roman and John Saxon. The two are are pretty good in this one. I think they are incredible in this movie. Now, Roman's character has just gotten her character's name, Nora, has just gotten off a plane from America to stay with her aunt. And she gets there, and John Saxon is her aunt's doctor. And he tells her, you know, she doesn't seem good. She's not in a good way. You might want to keep an eye on her and call me if you need anything. Well, she dies. And the aunt does, that is. And Nora is running out because the phones aren't working. She's trying to call the hospital. Runs out into the street and is basically looking for someone, anyone to help or trying to find her way to the hospital. She gets mugged, gets her purse stolen, and gets knocked onto the ground and hits her head. And she sees what she thinks is a murder. She sees a woman being murdered. Well, she reports this to the police, but there's no body the next day, and everyone thinks she's drunk because someone comes up and pours some alcohol into her mouth, and what only I can assume is to discredit her because You know, she's just lying there on the ground. Someone, police officer, finds her. He's like, oh, well, she's drunk. I'm going to take her to this hospital. Well, John Saxon eventually gets her out of there, but no one believes her about this murder. They think she hit her head. So the whole movie is, you know, was she going crazy? She's kind of following the trails of this murder that had happened, or murder spree that had happened years earlier, and trying to uncover things. Now, why is this movie important? I think it's important because it kind of pays homage to giallo literature as a whole there is a narration over the film that's kind of narrating her inner thoughts or her inner monologue and this narrator is a man i don't know who it is necessarily but there's a man narrating her inner dialogue and then you have so many references to mystery novels and thrillers and and you even at one point i think the narrator says something about You know, just like the novels of Christie and Wallace and all that kind of stuff. So you've got an homage or a nod to those Giallo novels. So this is almost bridging the gap between the two. And I think if you look at this one, I think there's a little bit of a connection. And if you want to know why I love Malignant from last year, you have no further to look than these older Giallo films. Now, it obviously pulls from other exploitation films for sure. But I think Malignant might have lifted one of its elements from this. At least, it's a kind of a throwaway element they go into earlier in the movie, but it seems like something very similar that they do in Malignant. So I don't know. That's all I'm saying. It might have had a little influence on that. The thing with this one, though, is I think you have to put this together with Blood and Black Lace to make a whole giallo that we would see later on. This one, you have the much stronger mystery and trying to solve the crime and going along very procedurally, but there's not a high body count. It's much more like a noir film or a mystery film. Just don't go into this one expecting any kind of high body count or large amount of violence. You would get that in Blood and Black Lace later. It kind of tiptoes into what we would see a giallo become. You know, you have those mystery elements, you have them trying to figure out and solve this crime, and you have the danger to the main protagonist as well. In another aspect that we wouldn't typically see with Giallo's, this one is in black and white. Now I think Bava makes the black and white work just like he did in Black Sunday. Because I really feel like when Nora is in certain nighttime scenes, her features are just accentuated in the black and white and you can her eyes just pop. You get different cool effects and similar to those things that made Val Luton's films cool. And you get these close-ups and these sweeping shots into her face and it just really works in black and white. Now, one word to the wise on this one. If you are searching it out, and you can at all possibly find this, I would recommend the Italian-language version. Now, you're not going to really find that on the streaming services. If you go to Shudder, you're going to get The Evil Eye. What is The Evil Eye? Well, this film already has some comedic elements. It's a little bit lighter or lighthearted ...in some aspects of the film. What the Evil Eye is, is it's the American version. And the score was replaced. There were additional comedic scenes added. And it changes some things around, including the ending... ...which, it's the very ending, it's kind of like the epilogue. It's not really the ending ending of the film, or the reveal, or anything like that. But the epilogue is the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen... ...in the American Evil Eye version. So it's just the different versions... If you can find it, I know that Kino Lorber has a decently inexpensive version of that, where you can get both versions of the film. I hate that it is billed first as the Evil Eye, but that's what we have. I think it's definitely worth checking out the original version, even more so, I mean, I don't think we ever got an Italian-language version of Black Sunday here in the U.S., but the other ones, English versions of Bava's films, I think are fine. It's just this one especially, I implore you to go seek out the Italian version. So that's part one of this, and I will say that this film, like I said, did not light the world on fire. It was the most unsuccessful box office return of any of Baba's films. And Baba's films were never known to turn a profit, at least early on, after they were released. It would be his counterpart Argento who would have much more success at the box office. What Bava did, usually, is with his films, they wouldn't make a ton in Italy, they'd sell them to America, and they would make their budget back on that alone. So this was not a success in Italy, and the Giallo trend, even though they would happen throughout the 60s, wouldn't really be kicked off until 1970. More to come on that later. The other part of this Bava double feature is Blood and Black Lace from 64. So, The Girl Who Knew Too Much or The Evil Eye was the only Giallo in 1963. In 1964, there was Blood and Black Lace, and there was The Monster of London City, which was a German Giallo. There are a couple of German films, and we'll get to one in just a minute, that are labeled as Giallos, and there are a ton of Spanish films labeled as Giallos because they kind of jumped on the trend. Giallo isn't necessarily just an Italian film. I think there would be. Giallo's from all over the place, and especially the Neo-Giallos that we've seen recently. But Blood and Black Lace would definitely be the most notable or the most recognizable to people listening to this, probably, out of the two movies. Personally, I do like Blood and Black Lace a little better than The Girl Who Knew Too Much, but I think they're both worth watching if you haven't seen them. Now, Blood and Black Lace, let's set that up a little bit. So, again, directed by Baba, came out in 1964. And you know I love taglines, and this one is... It needs to be said. Guaranteed, the eight greatest shocks ever filmed. I mean, there's a lot of shocking stuff in this, especially if you think about it in the context of when it came out. The synopsis reads, Inspector Sylvester is assigned to investigate the violent murder of a fashion house model Isabella by a masked assailant. As the investigation proceeds, all of the house's various sins, including corruption, abortions, blackmail, and drug addiction begin to come to light. It turns out that Isabella had kept a diary detailing these vices, and now almost every employee becomes nervous. What does Blood and Black Lace introduce? And this is something I want to tie into the last film as well. Blood and Black Lace introduces the masked killer in a long coat and a hat. Now, in The Girl Who Knew Too Much, there was a figure stalking around who had, you know, a hat and a long coat and whatever. But that's not the same image. Now, this one is straight up. There is a mask over the face that hides all the features of the killer. It's very much that quintessential Giallo killer look that we would come to know. I think, and I don't know, so The Bat, the Vincent Price film, came out in 1959 in the U.S. I wonder if Bava had seen that one and that had any influence or had seen any promotional material for it, because I get major the Bat vibes when I see this. Now, I obviously had seen Blood and Black Lace before the Bat, so maybe vice versa there. But I always think of the Bat when I think of Blood and Black Lace. What do we get? So we get the mystery portion of the Giallo in The Girl Who Knew Too Much. In Blood and Black Lace, we get the violence. Now, we don't necessarily get overly violent or not to the level we would get to later, but I think... And I want to take that back. We don't get as bloody and gory. But there is some pretty gnarly violence in this movie, and it's against women. You know, it takes place at this fashion house. In Blood and Black Lace, we get the stylistic stuff. We start to get the color, and we start to get colors popping and everything like that, which Bava would be famous for is his use of color. Same thing with later directors like Argento. But we get some real brutal violence, and a lot of it is against women, and they are murdered in very brutal ways. And wow, this one's uh, not for the weak of heart in that sense. Now, we would see Bava get even more brutal later on in his Giallo career, but this is what kicked it off. So I think when you put these two in combination is where we get a lot of the tropes we would see later on in Giallo's. And this one for me also is a must-watch. I mean, these two are must-watch giallos to just see where the genre got its start. Anyway, for personally, anyway. So that's what we have in these early formative years of the giallo. Now, I'm going to go down through, and typically I'm going to go down through year by year, but for this, we're going to cover from 63 through 68, because I think 69 is when we start to see the boom happening, and that's where my... Reviews where I have a review for almost every year I'm talking about will come into play. So let's finish up on this and move on to the next segment. So 1965, we had The Embalmer, Libido, Night of Violence, and The Possessed. So four Italian giallo films in 1965. The Possessed is the only one I've heard about, and I do need to watch The Possessed, I just did not get to it for this time through but The Possessed is one that Arrow has released in one of their sets, and it's by itself as well. But I've heard that one is pretty good. The other three I haven't heard of, and you're going to get a lot of that. I mean, this is the same if you were to go down a list of slashers or a list of direct-to-video movies it might be even worse, where you're getting a lot of stuff you know and a lot of stuff that's just doesn't stick. Now, that's not to say that some of these have never... I mean, maybe some of these have never gotten U.S. releases. All the time, we're getting these gems of Giallo films dug up and thrown into box sets or thrown into new releases. Giallo is a pretty deep well, and it feels like that the labels want to dig into this one as much as possible. So all the time we're getting new ones, maybe we'll hear about some of these other ones. I know there's ones for sure on this list as we go down through the years that have recently come out and gotten releases that i never heard of before those releases. Moving on to 1966, we have The Third Eye, which I have heard of, but have not seen it, A for Assassin, The Murder Clinic, Date for a Murder, and Murder with a Silk Scarf. And Murder with a Silk Scarf is a German giallo, the last one that I have on this list of films. And that one sounds interesting to me. Now, how would I ever watch this thing? I don't know, because... The synopsis on Letterbox just reads, The Murderer with a Silk Scarf. There's about, it looks like maybe 10 people total who have seen this, so there's no collective rating. I don't think there's anywhere to watch this. That one's probably not going to be available to me, but I do like the title of it. For whatever that's worth, maybe one day that'll come out and I'll get to watch it. In 1967, we had Killer Without a Face and Deadly Sweet, and those are the only two films of that year. I haven't heard of either of those, at all. In 1968, things start to pick up a little bit. We get The Sweet Body of Deborah, which I have heard and not watched. Death Laid an Egg, which, if you want to watch one of the weirdest Geollas ever, probably one of the most memorable. Not one of the best, but it's pretty solid, honestly. Check out Death Laid an Egg. That one's pretty insane. We have A Quiet Place in the Country, which I've also heard of but never watched. Antonio Margarides, The Young, The Evil, and The Savage, which I have not watched as well. Deadly Inheritance, never watched but is on my list. Run, Psycho, Run. And then we have Massimo Dalamano's Giallo debut with a black veil for Lisa. This one's been on my list for years. I still haven't got to it. I love Dalamano's work. He wasn't around for very long, but he made a very lasting impact in the giallo genre. And I will be checking that one out. That's pretty much the next one on my list. I just didn't get to it for this episode. So that's our early listing of giallos. From now on, we'll be going year by year as we get to the segments and going down through the list of giallos in the year and talking about the one that I watched that was my first time watch for these episodes and talking about anything important that had happened in the genre. But, before we get into 1969, I want to take a little break, and I want to shout out a website, and it is giallofiles.blogspot.com. And I've seen this throughout the years, and have laughed at a lot of the descriptions after I've watched some of these. But this blog, basically, and it's kind of hard to navigate on phone anyway. It might be easier to just search whatever title, Giallo, you want to look up, and then the Giallo files after it, and it'll take you to the page if this person has done it. And it looks like it's still up and running. I think they've had some newer stuff this year. But what this does is give kind of like a wrap sheet on each one of the Giallos, and has a review underneath the wrap sheet. And I think these are really fun and really enjoyable. Let me—I um, just pulled up the one for Blood and Black Lace. Now keep in mind that this is. It has some spoilers in it, so don't go on there if you haven't seen the movies. But, so we've got Blood and Black Lace. It kind of has your main characters, a paper clip to the side on this little file. Gives you the title, gives you the alternate titles. And some of the ones for this one are Six Women for the Killer, Six for the Murderer, six Women for the Murderer, and Fashion House of Death. Then you have the director, the year, the runtime the actors in the film. And then it gets into the next line, which is, does the title make sense? It's either yes, no, or sort of. Blood and Black Lace it is, yes. Then it tells you below, it has a count of how many murders, how many attempted murders, how many fake murders, how many animals killed, and then it gives you a rundown of the method of kills. And that's where it gets into a little bit of the spoiler, and then it has a checklist. And in this checklist, we have... Essentially, what are Giallo tropes? And it checks the boxes to any tropes that they may have, and there's some spoilers in here as well, but the first one's All-Girl School, which is checked in this case, then you've got Animal in the title, Bad 1970s Art, Boobs, Gay Character, Horribly Racist, Inept Police, and that's checked here, Killer's POV, which is checked here, you've got Main Character in a Creative Profession, which is checked here, Number in the title, paranormal plot makes sense and that is checked for this one but a lot of times it's not checked you'd be surprised (laughs) priest is the killer red phone which is checked here as well seen in a cemetery spiral staircase tape recorder used as a misdirect and woman slapped in the face which spoiler alert is checked here so it goes down through all these giallo tropes that we've come to know And then it goes in, talks about it a little bit, and then it'll give you some bullet points on, you know, some different background or facts on the film. It has a section called, What the Hell Am I Watching? And this is where you see, I think it goes into usually, like, a weird scene in the film or something. And then you've got Fashion Moment, which it highlights, you know, what's going on with what these people are wearing in a certain scene. And it'll show you pictures. And that's about it. That's the rundown. But that's really fun if you've never went to Giallo Files or... Stumbled upon the Giallo files. I really like going through there. Alright, let's jump right back into our timeline and get into 1969.
3: Enter the private domain of the developed connoisseur. Exposing the obsessive bondage that very special men and women enjoy over each other. With the internationally famous Philippe Leroy as sayer, a sadist, expert in bizarre punishments, a complete master of the most exquisite techniques of mental and physical torture. Dagmar Lassander as Maria, his prisoner. Philippe LeRoy and Dagmar Lassander quite unlike anything you have ever experienced before. The peculiar bondage in which both master and slave are inescapably trapped. You will never entirely forget this revealing motion picture experience.
0: So in 1969, we had 12 giallos released that year. And we start to get things brewing, even if this isn't really going to be a year that you look back at and say, like, oh, there's a ton of outstanding giallos in this. Or, oh, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. There's not a whole lot of that from what I've seen anyway. Now, there's some interesting titles though I want to check out, including The Doll of Satan and Murder by Music, which both sound pretty cool. But let's go down through. So we have one called Enterabang, A Complicated Girl, The Doll of Satan, Murder by Music, Death Knocks Twice, Double Face, and then we have Lucio Fulci's premiere, at least in the giallo realm, with one on top of the other. And then you have a pair of Spanish giallos in macabre and the house that screamed now the house that screamed i want to talk about really quickly because the house that screamed is a really cool film i've talked about it before i think in my euro horror early euro horror episodes at some point if you haven't seen the house that screamed it's not going to blow you away and the violence is kind of at a minimum but it is pretty disturbing and it is set in that you know all-girls school setting and i love that So I don't know why I love that. But if a film has that, I'm much more attracted to it. I don't know why. But I really do like The House That Screamed. So check that one out if you haven't already. And then we get a series that would kick off what are essentially pretty dull films in my estimation. Now some people might like them, but they're nothing special. They're nothing... They're nothing you're going to write home about, and that is the collaborations between Umberto Lindsay and Carol Baker. Now, in these collaborations, in 69 particularly, we have So Sweet, So Perverse, we have Orgasmo, and I think that's it for that year, but we do have those two, and is Orgasmo or Paranoia, you're going to find that one under, but they would go on to collaborate several more times, and there used to be a box set with their films in them, and you've got A Quiet Place to Kill and Knife of Ice, and I think that's it. I think those are the four, are Paranoia, or Orgasmo, So Sweet, So Perverse, Knife of Ice, and a, pl- and a Quiet Place to Kill. Now, she would go on to star in several other giallos, including The Sweet Body of Deborah, The Fourth Victim, which is one of the ones I for sure talked about in my Spanish horror episode, or early Spanish horror. And then you have The Flower with Petals of Steel, and in addition to those Giallo, you know, she would also go on to be in films like Baba Yaga, and The Watcher in the Woods, and The Game with Michael Douglas. Carol Baker's been around, and she did these collaborations with Lindsay early on, and we'll get a couple more of those in the years as we go on. Further through this. Now, I've seen the two from 1969. I think they're both competent enough. I like Paranoia or Orgasmo a lot better. So that's kind of the lineup. Again, there's nothing huge or nothing that stands out here, except for the one I want to do my first review on. And again, these are first time reviews, first time watches. I picked, and it kind of started out as weird. I just picked a list that I wanted to see that I haven't seen. And they somehow fell into place where it was almost one a year. So I just added a couple more on there and made it one a year for these big years of the Giallo, at least. So my first time review for 1969 is The Laughing Woman, which is a film I think you could argue whether it's a Giallo or not. I saw it on some list and not on other lists. The Laughing Woman was directed by Piero Shibazapa and came out in 1969. The synopsis reads, Beautiful PR woman, Maria, finds herself trapped in the home of a sinister and troubled Dr. Sawyer, where she is subjected to a series of increasingly bizarre, terrifying, and degrading sex games. And I'm going to stop it right there, because it does get a little bit too deep for what you would want to know. So, this is an incredibly strange movie, and it's not going to be for everyone. But if you like weird absurd grindhouse films or exploitation type films i think it's a little bit classier than those ones to a sense i mean but this is just completely out there and i wasn't expecting what i got i should have been because it makes complete sense that this one would have been released on mondo macabre that label usually takes some extremely weird movies and puts them out there and i'm glad they did really Because otherwise, who knew, who knows if we would have ever seen it? So, yes, it is completely absurd. You've got our main character, played by Dagmar Lasander, and that will not be the last time we talk about her on this episode. But she's the lead, and then you've got Felipe Leroy, who is Dr. Sayer. And Dr. Sayer, she's essentially in the wrong place at the wrong time. She's getting ready to write up a story on something, and she goes into Dr. Sayer's office, well, he says, I don't have the files, but, you know, you can come to my house and pick them up, well, she offered first, she offered to go to his house to pick them up, so she offers, and then he says, well, you can come over and pick him up, she goes over there, and she basically gets drugged, and wakes up in this weird room, in a weird house, with all kinds of weird, bright, and vibrant colors all over the walls. She is now essentially Dr. Sayer's plaything, and a series of very bizarre weird occurrences happen with Sayer. It becomes apparent that one, he is a raging misogynist who is weirdly obsessed with things that are I don't I don't know why he's obsessing over what he's obsessing over. The dude is a complete loon. It's so weird and unsettling and off-putting about this guy, what he does. It's almost comedic, but it's also very weird at the same time. But our lead finds ourselves in these weird situations, and things kind of progress as the film goes along. I don't really want to get into a whole lot of it and how the film changes. It's not your typical giallo. You're not going to see a ton of body count. Although there are some pretty cool moments of, you know some violent set pieces that happen in this movie. And there is a little bit of mystery and intrigue. It's mostly kind of a thrill ride, honestly. There's not as much mystery, there's not as much violence and much of a body count in this one as there is. There's more of the sexual stuff that goes on in this movie that we would see amplified later on. I don't think it's overly gratuitous, but it is there. This one had me from the beginning and did not let me go. I think this is a very good Giallo film. It, you know, it has this, it has a bit of, I'm talking about like the thrill ride or the intrigue, it almost has a bit of a 1001 Nights vibe at points, you know, that's the Arabic thing where Princess or a woman, I can't remember what it is, is trying to stave off her execution, and she's telling this guy stories, essentially. And we've got a little bit of that feel to it. It goes off on a little bit of a tangent for a while, and you might be wondering, you know, about the hour mark. It's like, what is going on? What is happening? But trust me, it all connects in the end, and it all makes sense. And we get one of the most satisfying endings, uh, no pun intended there, that I've ever seen. I mean, this this conclusion is awesome, and how everything ties together, and I really liked that. It also starts off as one of the most misogynistic giallos I think I've ever seen with the way Dr. Sayer acts, but as the story unfolds, we quickly realize that this film might actually be the opposite of that, and that might just be the facade that it's putting up and showing you how it's going to tear it down. I really love The Laughing Woman. If you can find this one watch it. I know there is a mono Macabro Blu-ray out there that is not that expensive. Other than that, I think it's decently hard to find because they do not put their stuff on streaming services or streaming purchase platform. But honestly, it's absolutely worth buying it and watching it if you're into this type of thing. Just know it's going to be absurd, it's going to be weird, it's not going to be a lot of straight-ahead horror, but there are so many cool moments and aspects in this one. This is why I think a lot of people struggle whether this is even a giallo, but it kind of fits the mold in ways. In other ways, it doesn't necessarily fit that mold, but I highly recommend The Laughing Woman to anyone who can stomach that sort of stuff, and I'll tell you, it's probably the biggest surprise of all these first-time watches that I went into for these episodes. All right, so that is the listing and my first-time watch from 1969. I'm going to move on to another voicemail from Will, who is over on Twitter and most social medias as Armored Foe, and hosts a podcast called Shapes and Shadows, which I know I at least listen to on Spotify. And that's a solo cast where Will just kind of goes into a discussion and a breakdown on whatever movie is on his mind at the time he goes to record it. So let's hear from Will, see what he has to say.
4: Trey, it's me, Mario. Oh, that's terrible. Trey, it's Will, a.k.a. Armored Foe. I was calling in just to say, you know, my thoughts on Giallo's. I think um, when I was young, I thought they were really dumb and boring. And as I got older, uh, growing up as a slasher kid, I'm pretty much slasher guy through and through. So it was kind of that thing of as I started to watch Giallo's, I just, again, I thought they were slow and boring, and I just was like, these are just wannabe slasher films. And, again, as I got older, I started to realize I started to appreciate the murder mystery aspect of it and kind of the more subtlety of it. And, uh, yeah, I got to say, my top three for me, and this is just me and not necessarily in any particular order, but I would say Torso, Opera, and Tenebrae. Those are my three go-tos. I think those movies are so badass, so awesome. Uh, love them. And again, appreciate the, um, just the whole murder mystery vibe. I love the whole, you know, mask, you know, not necessarily masked assailant thing, but the whole, almost the opposite with the gloves, you know, the black gloves and you see that kind of stuff and the soundtrack's really kick ass. And, uh, you know, let's just say too, as I got older, I appreciate the ladies because, you know, giallos love to show the ladies. And that's about it, man. Thanks. Have a good one.
0: Thanks so much for calling in, Will. Yeah, I love Tenebra and Opera, and I really like Torso, too. I mean, those are definitely, well, I'm not going to spoil anything for a later segment that I'm going to do probably on the next episode, but just know that I like all three of those. Okay, well, it's time to keep this train moving, and I'm going to roll in to 1970. One of the seminal years for giallos as far as kicking things off.
3: I can't get in! How do I open the door? I'm Inspector Morosini. I want to know everything you saw and heard. I can't pin it down... There was something wrong with it, something odd. There is a dangerous maniac at large in this city.
4: Do you really love me?
3: Sure. Just before we closed, we saw that painting that was in the window. Did you make the sale? No, uh, the poor girl did. Last night, a blonde, 28, lived alone. The press are beginning to put two and two together. They think they see a link between the four murders. I'm getting closer to the truth every minute. That's why he's trying to kill me. (laughs) This damn thing is turning into an obsession.
0: The funny thing about 1970 is it kicked off the genre, but, or at least the genre's popularity, but there's not too much to write home about in the year itself that I've seen so far, anyway. There's none of the really, there's not as much of the big name ones until we get to 71, 72, so on and so forth. But let's go ahead and get down the list here. We have, of course, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. We've got a pair of Bava films in Hatchet for the Honeymoon and Five Dolls for an August Moon, which are both pretty good. They're pretty solid Bava films. They're nothing great, but they're they're good enough. Then we have A Quiet Place to Kill, which is another one of those baker lindsay collaborations I was just talking about. We have Death Occurred Last Night, A Suitcase for a Corpse, Your Hands on My Body, Kill the Fatted Calf and Roast It. Interesting title there. In the Folds of Flesh. The Weekend Murders. And then we're going to have the one which I will dive into a first-time review, which is The Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion. Now it is with that one and The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which I think we start to get in. I mean, we got $5 for an August Moon. We start to get into the very stereotypical and interesting (laughs) titles for the giallo first of all touching on the bird with the crystal plumage it released in june of 1970 and then forbidden photos which is another landmark type movie as far as if you're talking about the bigger giallos that one released in november so you've got a little bit of a time gap there but that's essentially what kicks this thing off is bird with the crystal plumage A lot of these movies might have come out before it during the year, but that is when we start to see the box office success in Italy, and we start to see people go nuts for these things, and Italy by the next year is just pumping out giallos left and right, and Spain too is putting out a decent amount. So the big one ultimately that we'll want to talk about is Bird with a Crystal Plumage, and that one just skyrocketed. I mean... Argento, and there will absolutely be an Argento series at some point in the future, so I'm not going to go too far deep into his films, but Bird was the first of his animal trilogy, the first of his directorial efforts. He had been working on some spaghetti westerns earlier with uh, Sergio Leone and doing some pretty prestigious work, but this is the movie that he launched his career on, really. And... Bird with Crystal Plumage is interesting from the beginning. There's this very memorable, I think is the word I want to use, and it's a great scene too. It is a great set piece at the beginning with a man getting stuck in between doors and a woman about to be murdered. It's fantastic. And you get a lot of those tropes we would see in Giallo's are present here as well. But... Bird with the Crystal Plumage was just on a different level than a lot of movies that came before it. And I like it. It's not in my top 5 Argento films. It's you know, probably approaching the latter half of the top 10 of my Argento films. But there's no denying the impact that this film had. And I can I can see it because you're getting what is in my opinion the best of the animal trilogy and I think most people would concur on that and the animal trilogy are three films that Argento released in subsequent years which were 70 71 and 72 with cat and nine and tails and four flies on gray velvet and they all had animals in the title and that's the only time that Argento did that even though he would feature animals in almost all of his at least his earlier films would have animals in them so there was a lot of that going on but this was the one that sent the genre into the stratosphere And we'll get to more on that a little bit later in some comparisons and on a different topic, you know, after I get through this uh, first-time review here, but there's no overstating just how much influence this one had on the genre as a whole, and is really, you can thank this one for kicking everything off, so that's a huge one. Now, as far as the first-time view, this one had been on my list for a long time. So let's get into that one, which is The Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion. Very long title, very descriptive title. That's what we would come to know. I don't know if that's these are over-sensationalized titles, or if just the translations are so long and insane like they kind of are with Japanese titles. But either way, I don't mind this title. It's not the most catchy title. It's not going to grab you and pull you in. This one came out in 1970 and was directed by Luciano Ercoli. And Ercoli would go on to direct both Death Walks on High Heels and Death Walks at Midnight, which were some other giallos. That's about the extent of what Ercoli did that would be widely recognizable here in the U.S. The synopsis reads, The wife of a financially struggling businessman is blackmailed by a mysterious man into having a sadistic relationship with him, or he will release damning evidence that suggests that her husband is a murderer. Really what happens here is we do have our main character, which is played by Dagmar Lysander again from The Laughing Woman, and she's told by a man, she's attacked and almost, you know, sexually assaulted in a park, and told... Oh, your husband killed someone to cover up his financial struggles. I'm going to release this information and have your husband thrown in jail unless you do what I say. She believes it and does what the man tells her. You know, he try. She tries to buy him off a couple times, and it doesn't work. And but that's basically what she's left with is doing what this guy tells her to and wants from him to get the tape of him. Incriminating himself about murdering this guy. What unfolds from there, and everything might not be as it seems, just like is the case in a lot of Giallo's. But it's basically her trying to figure out who this guy is and stop this blackmail. She can't have these photos of herself get out, um, and the photos are from the two having sex that he secretly took. She can't have these get out because it'll ruin her marriage and everything else. Now, Interesting, sex is at the center of this plot and film, although the film conducts itself in a pretty tasteful way as far as that goes. Now, there's certain elements, yes, but we don't have the rampant nudity or sex and stuff going on, and we really don't get a lot of that in these early films, I mean, through 1970. Those would come along pretty much in the next year, like, they're, <laughs> they're we're going to get a lot more of those. But this is what I'm talking about as you can have from one giallo to another just completely different themes. Not all of them just have naked people running all over the place. But I don't even think we see much of the initial sex scene. It's just we see glimpses of it going through her mind as she's talking to her husband and other people throughout the film. So it's very restrained in that way. I love that the center of the film doesn't really involve people being murdered left and right it's all centered around a marriage, essentially. There's not just this large body count going on or anything like that. It's mostly, again, kind of like with The Laughing Woman, but in a completely different way. This is much more of a standard giallo than The Laughing Woman. But you're getting through this through the lens of a marriage and not just like we're trying to solve mysteries about a murder. We're trying to solve the mystery of who this guy is, how to get these photos back, things like that. And I don't think, like I said with the thriller elements here, I don't think the fact that there's not murders left and right make it less thrilling. It's still really thrilling following our characters. You get to know and love our main character and don't want anything to happen to her, and we want justice for that character, so that's what's going on through this. You are very involved. One note I want to make, and I don't know if this is covered in the Giallo files in their fashion moment, but... I'm no 1970s Italian fashion expert, but what in the world is the character Dominique wearing in this movie in a couple scenes? She's like, and her character, I mean, she has like a bunch of pornographic pictures and stuff in her house, and she shows those to our main character, and so she's very much a free spirit in that sense, but it's almost like she cut a head hole out of a tablecloth and flung it over her. And that's pretty much what she's wearing in one of these scenes, not leaving a whole lot to the imagination. There's a really smart line that I like when our character is trying to pay off another one. This is what I was talking about with our main character trying to pay off the blackmailer. But he comes out and says, and you know, she is coerced into doing these sex acts with him and the pictures are taken, and he's basically saying to her, well, would you come over here... If I hadn't thrown the blackmail thing around, you know, would you have come back here if there wasn't for the me wanting, you wanting to get the tape of your husband or you wanting to get these pictures back? Would you have come over here at all and engaged in that? You know, would you have come over for money and done these things for money as opposed to trying to get back the blackmailed items? Which she fights with him back and forth a little bit, but basically has to admit, no, I wouldn't, and he's like, well, why would I want you to pay me for this as well? So it's kind of showing he's not just some criminal off the street. He's very smart. He knows what he's doing. He's a professional with this type of thing. I really liked that line. I'm paraphrasing, and probably it does not sound as cool at all, but you'll get it if you've seen the film or if you watch the film. The finale is pretty good, too. This is... One that I didn't really see coming or playing out this way. I saw it playing out one way, but not necessarily in the way it did. But this is also one of the least violent giallos I think I've seen. I mean, there's not a whole lot to be said. The Laughing Woman is the same, where it's not a lot of violence either. But there's just not a lot of violence at all. So if that's what you're looking for in a giallo, this isn't necessarily going to be it. If you're looking more for the edge-of-your-seat thrills and the mystery element... The Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion is absolutely what you want to check out. This one is pretty high up for me. I like it a lot and would recommend it to, I mean, most Giallo fans. It is out there on Arrow Video. They have put out a Blu-ray of this one, so you can easily check it out. It's a couple different places. I think it's on Shutter and it's on the Arrow player, so plenty of places to see it out there. This was one of those where... I couldn't believe I waited so long to see it, because it is a more well-known Giallo. But that being said, I still really like it, and I'm glad I got to it eventually. Alright, so as we're in between years here, I want to talk a little bit about Giallo's relationship with slashers, because I think slashers are a much more, in the U.S. here, acceptable form of horror, or something that people gravitate to and really love, and get behind, and there's some of us that get that way about giallos, and I love slashers as well, but I want to kind of put in perspective how the giallo affected the slasher, how the two are kind of parallel with each other, and what all that means. Now, giallos have a pretty clear lineage as far as what inspired them, where did they come from, and that is these novels that I was talking about earlier in the show, but I'm sure they also grasped inspiration from any number of noir films, or something like Peeping Tom or Psycho, for sure. Knowing how much the Italian film industry, which, listen, I love Italian cinema, I love their horror and everything like that, there's no denying that usually they have, in the past, taken a genre that was popular somewhere else and put their own spin on it. And that's fine, and it's worked wonders. I mean, You can say they were aping westerns in the 60s, but Leone also put out some of the best westerns that have ever been brought to film. So can you really deny or argue with that? So I think it's pretty apparent where the giallo sprang from. It sprang from these crime films. It came from the novels that were first sold under the giallo, you know, the yellow covers and all that it came probably from any number of cinematic influences. But what has sprung up from the Giallos? And what would be different if we never got them? Well, I think first and foremost, I mean, people like to talk about proto slashers and things like that. I think if we only got Psycho, we still may see some brand of what would come to be known as the Slasher come along, but I I don't think we'd necessarily end up with what we got. Let's take a look at something that most people would widely agree is the first traditional slasher. Now, I would make an argument for things before Halloween, even though... And that's nothing against Halloween. I mean, Halloween is one of my top three horror movies of all time. But I know for a fact we don't get Halloween without Psycho. But there's a case to be made that we don't get Halloween in its form without something like a giallo. It's no secret that, you know, Carpenter's been on record a few times as saying Suspiria is one of his favorite horror movies of all time. I'm sure he was very aware of the works of Dario Argento when he was making Halloween. I mean, he was a film student at the time. He wasn't just some guerrilla filmmaker. I mean, he did go to film school for a little bit at USC. He would have probably been tuned into a lot of stuff that the average viewer in America wouldn't have. I don't know. I don't know if anyone's asked Carpenter, if he, you know, he watched any Giallo, if those were his influences. I'm not sure that Carpenter would tell him if he would, if he did, because, you know, uh, just knowing Carpenter. But that's my thing is it seems like there's a lot of giallo seeping in to what he was doing with halloween or what we would see later with other slashers as well i think one thing is for sure is there is no brian de palma without the giallo genre i don't think de palma would have existed in his current form or what he did without the giallo to inspire him i think he takes a ton from italian film when you look back at a lot of his movies. Especially, I mean, Body Double and Dress to Kill and those types of movies are ripped straight out of a giallo. Blowout, I mean, I think that's one person whose career would be completely changed if there never were giallos. But if we set aside something like Halloween, and again, people like to talk about the proto slashers or anything like that, I would just call things like Texas Chainsaw and... Black Christmas Slashers. That's me. Now, Texas Chainsaw, I don't see much Giallo in that one. But Black Christmas is so intertwined with what a Giallo is. I think that's a perfect, that's almost a perfect Giallo. I mean, you could imagine that movie moved to Spain or France, set it in an all girls boarding school instead of a sorority house. And I think you have the same film. Essentially, I don't think it would feel out of place. You have John Saxon as well, who would make his mark an Italian film all over the place. I mean, that one makes the most sense to me, is that that just feels like a giallo. And again, I don't know what the access was to these films. I think some of them were very widely available, especially we're talking things like Bird with the Crystal Plumage or Deep Red or things like that, which Deep Red, of course, is after Black Christmas, but I'm digressing here. I'm going to hit on a couple more films that either directly or indirectly seem to inspire the slasher as well. When we talk about something like Torso, and you put Torso up against, you know, the town that dreaded Sundown, seems pretty similar in the killer's design. Now, you could argue that was based off, you know, a real-life killer or something like that, but still, it exists within film, and it's fair to put on the table. I think Torso in general is a good example of what a slasher would come out to be. I think there are a few examples of that. I think you have Torso, and I think you have Bay of Blood. There's a little bit of a difference between the two. I mean, Torso is much more, I think, of what we would think of a traditional slasher in the fact that, you know, you've got the body count, you've got the way people are getting killed, things like that, but it's still a giallo for sure because Slasher was not a thing at the time. And then you've got something like Bay of Blood, which... And, I mean, in my eyes, Bay of Blood... It is a very important film. It is not my favorite film. It's not even close. It's not something I necessarily like. I think it's too convoluted and all over the place. There's too many characters getting introduced and whacked off. But that's the kind of thing you have, right? You have characters that are brought onto the screen with no connection... And it's not in a normal giallo sense of not making sense of anything. What we really have is just people included to increase the body count. I mean, there are four teenagers that are included in this film pretty much just to die. They're not related in any other way to the story. So I think if you look at those two, if you've never seen a giallo and you love slashers, Torso, Bay of Blood are two of the early ones that I think have a lot of a slasher feel. And it's funny enough that, you know, those came out well before the slasher craze, but then you have something like Stage Fright that comes out later in the Giallo cycle, and it's called a slasher. And I have a problem with that, because the main problem is, one, it is definitely still a weird Italian film. Michele Suave does not make a straightforward you know, American-style film. Now, not to say there aren't any weird slashers. Now, if you like slashers, like... I'm trying to think of ones that are weird or kind of off the beaten path, like Happy Birthday to Me or... You know, I'm blanking, but something along those lines that's just not traditional and kind of weird. I think stage fright's your thing. Stage fright's not necessarily going to be for every slasher fan. But I think it does fall into a lot of what we would see from a slasher, but how can you call something a slasher when there's already a genre for it within the movie's home country. That's my stance on Stage Fright, but Stage Fright's another one where I think some slasher fans would like it for sure. I've heard other people refer to Dario Argento's Opera, which was his last great film in my estimation. He made some good ones after that, but I think that's his last great one. And that's another one where... You're basically talking about the guy who kicked off, and in, I mean, without him, we wouldn't have the explosion of Giallo films. I don't think it's fair to call one of his films a slasher when it's basically just riffing off and evolving the Giallo. I mean, you can make a case the same way that people say, you know, spaghetti westerns are ripoff of westerns, you could almost make a case that slashers are ripoffs of Giallos. Uh, you know, American ripoffs of giallos, but again, you could say giallos are ripoffs of the Krimi films or something like that. I think that's unfair, either way you put it. I think there's a certain style to giallos and a certain way giallos are filmed a lot of the time that give them a unique feeling, and I think the same is true about slashers. And I think they can both coexist wonderfully. I just don't know if we get the slasher craze that we get without getting those giallos. And I want to give you a little bit of a an arc or an example of how these two genres are actually very similar. I mean, we're talking pretty eerily similar. If you look at Giallos, we have our first iterations of Giallos in films like The Girl Who Knew Too Much and Blood and Black Lace, which came about six years before the Giallo craze. Now, the early years are where the timelines don't necessarily match up. We've got, you know, six years before, really, Blood and Black Lace is what would inform what a giallo would be, I would say. The same thing is true of films like Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw and that, that they came out really, I mean, the slasher craze is what, around 1980 is where we get our kickoff? I mean, here's the way I always looked at it, is Yeah, without Halloween, we don't have the slasher, for sure. And I think that's kind of true with the Giallo as well. You know, it's Bird with Crystal Plumage that really is that hallmark moment in the genre, the same as Halloween. So you get your early influencers, and then several years later, we have the Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which kicks the whole thing off. And then shortly after, you know, we see in 71, 72, 73, 74, 75, is really the height of the giallo genre. You've got a five-year span, basically, that they existed and ruled the Italian film world. I think it's very similar with Halloween. I mean, you can say, I think Friday the 13th is really the one that kicked off the slasher craze. Halloween was the template, the blueprint, the thing that's going to inform the genre going forward. But Carpenter wasn't setting out to create a slasher when he made that. Whereas Cunningham was with Friday the 13th. And at that point, it's at that junction that I think we have the slasher craze, which lasts for, again, about four or five years, where it's consuming everything and we're putting out a ton of slashers. So I think they're just very similar. And then if you want to go in a different vein, so say 75 is the end of the Giallo Craze. You can say the same thing eighty-four, eighty-five as the end of the slasher craze. Something along those lines. Well in 1982, which would be six years later, we would get what is essentially the scream of Giallo's in Tenebra, which is a very meta film. It very much reflects and takes a look at Dario Argento's career. It's him creating a film kind of tackling the criticisms he's had along his career. He's also tackling the criticisms within the genre, and he's doing that meta thing that we would see Scream do about 12 years after the slasher craze. So, again, the timelines don't necessarily line up as far as years, but I think they have the same basic structure. You've got the films that come before that are trailblazers and are going to inform the genre. You've got the one that kicks it off, which is, in this case, Blood and Black Lace. Bird, with the Crystal Plumage, kicks it off. And then you have the craze for a few years shortly thereafter. Same thing with Slashers. You do have ones that come before it. But in this situation, I think Halloween is most comparable to Blood and Black Lace because it's laying that foundation work. Friday the 13th kicks everything off into a craze. You've got a few years, and then they both have their meta, or, you know, looking... Internally, moments where they're kind of satirizing the genre while still paying homage and making excellent films with Tenebra and Scream. And we see both genres equally represented today with these kind of love letters to those types of films. And that's something I can talk about with the Giallo a little bit later on. But they are very similar in their life cycle. I think they're very similar in how they came to be, if you are, I think I'm doing this mainly to shed some light on just how much giallos and slashers have in common, so if you're someone who is like Brian Scott and you love slashers, Brian, I don't know if you've watched any giallos or not, if you haven't, I would definitely recommend starting with something like Torso or A Bay of Blood first, They're not necessarily, now I think Torso is a very good film, Bay of Blood's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I would watch those and start with those, Brian, if you haven't seen any Giallo's at all, I would love to know if you have, because I know you're a huge slasher fan, but yeah, I just love to know about that, and you know, Deep Red I think is another one that is very, I think it's a good entry point into the Giallo genre, Um, especially for anyone coming in as an outsider, I think that one would make a good entry as well, although that one's, you get a lot more of the style and all that we would be used to, but Deep Red is just a good digestible giallo. But that's about enough of that, I've went on a little too long on that one. Let's switch over to 1971. Okay, so 1971 was a big year for Giallos. There were a ton that were released, and a lot of classics of the genre as well. Let's run down the list here. We have The Man with the Icy Eyes, The Fifth Chord, which stars Franco Nero and was was another Luigi Bazzani film after he did The Possessed as well you have Oasis of Fear and then we get into Sergio Martino's films and Martino directed a lot of solid giallos here in the in uh, 1971, 1972, 1973 in this year he did both The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward and The Case of the Scorpion's Tail which I'm I much prefer The Case of the Scorpion's Tail of those two but Um, Then you have Black Belly of the Tarantula, which is, I always thought, a really interesting one. It has some very memorable scenes, and you've got a killer who's using a needle, almost, to paralyze his victims. Then you've got the last two films in the Animal Trilogy from Argento, which are The Cat of Nine Tails and Four Flies on Grey Velvet. I much prefer The Cat of Nine Tails, although neither of these, I don't think, I mean, they don't reach the heights of Argento's career. I'm not a huge fan of Four Flies, but I've only seen that one once. Then you have Marta, The Double, Cross Current, The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, which I did not get to, but I have been meaning to see that one for a while. Looks like there's a good Arrow release of that out there. We've got Bay of Blood, which is one I talked about just before this, which was a Mario Bava film. Then you've got They Have Changed Their Face, The Designated Victim, Slaughter Hotel, The Fourth Victim, which was directed by the director of Horror Express, which is a great movie if you haven't seen that one. Not a giallo, but still great. Then you have The Devil Has Seven Faces, trio of Spanish giallo with Seven Murders for Scotland Yard, The Glass Ceiling, and... Two Males for Alexa. That one sounds very risque. You have Death Walks on High Heels, which was directed by Ercole, who did forbidden photos of A Lady Above Suspicion. You got The Short Night of Glass Dolls, which is an Aldo Lotto film, and this isn't one that I'm a huge fan of, but a lot of people seem to like. You have Cold Eyes of Fear, Human Cobras, In the Eye of the Hurricane, Amok which I have not seen, but I do want to see. And then The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, which is the first of a pair of Emilio Miraglia films, which we would see another one the next year, which I will talk a lot more about. But The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave is a pretty cool one. It's I, I like the setup of it and the way the payoff goes, but that's a good one to watch as well. 471, it was so big that I actually have two different first time reviews here. And those two films you'll notice I haven't mentioned yet. If you're a diehard Giallo fan, you probably know which ones they are. We have A Lizard in a Woman's Skin, which is a Lucio Fulci Giallo. And then we have The Bloodstained Butterfly. So let me start off here with A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. So once again, this is the second Giallo directed by Fulci. And the synopsis reads, Carol Hammond, the sexually frustrated wife of a successful London lawyer, is having bizarre erotic dreams about her uninhibited neighbor, Julia Durer, who presides over noisy, sex- and drug-filled parties in the house next door. One night, Carol's dreams culminate in violent death, and she wakes to find her nightmares have become reality. So yeah, that's that's basically what happens here, is Carol has these dreams, and very vivid dreams, and with Fulci, you know, they get very weird, and they get very, they're bright and colorful and everything, but um, very dreamlike for a lot of this movie, and even the reality stuff is pretty dreamlike. But that's the... That's the basic premise is you've got Carol here having these dreams. She talks to her psychiatrist about it and kind of works through what those mean. And she's always dreaming of like her neighbor who is having all these parties and she's dreaming of her, you know, being naked and all this other stuff. And it's that's basically what it is. I mean, there's not a whole lot of plot to this one. Carol is suspected of a murder because she's had these dreams and it's. Basically, you're going through the investigation of, you know, who did it, and you've got her husband, who may have ulterior motives, and you've got her dad, who's just trying to prove that she's innocent, and yeah, it just unfolds from there in, I wouldn't say true Fulci fashion, because this isn't as violent or anything like that as a lot of Fulci's films, but it's very weird. It is an insane movie. And I think I like it just for that. There's one very trippy sequence in particular that involves this large bird of some kind. I don't know if it's a goose or what it is, but it's pretty crazy. And yeah, it's just such a weird movie that goes further than most of the giallos at the time. The plot is fine, like I said, but it can get a little confusing here or there. It's not something that... Necessarily going to draw you in. I mean, it's a Fulci film. I thought where this film died a lot, I mean, the ending and the reveal, it's not very satisfying. And by the time you get to them, you've kind of lost a little interest. And I'm not a huge Fulci fan. There are a few Fulci movies that I really like, and the rest of them I think are just okay. This is one of those that I think it's better than, I like it better than a lot of Fulci films, but. It's still not necessarily my cup of tea. So I do like a lizard in a woman's skin, but yeah, it's nothing I'm going to run out and buy or anything like that. It's just a good solid giallo with some really cool weird dream type sequences. So that's about all I have for a lizard in a woman's skin. Let's move on to the other first time review I have for this one with The Bloodstained Butterfly. The Bloodstained Butterfly was directed by Duccio Tesari, and the synopsis reads, When a young female student is savagely killed in a park during a thunderstorm, the culprit seems obvious. TV sports personality Alessandro Marchi, seen fleeing the scene of the crime by numerous eyewitnesses. The evidence against him is damning, but is it all too convenient? And when the killer strikes again, while Marchi is in custody, it quickly becomes apparent that there's more to the case than meets the eye. And that's not necessarily a spoiler or anything. I think that's a good synopsis. This is a very different type of giallo. And I think that's very evident at the beginning, because you have this sequence play out where they're bringing in all of these characters on screen during like the credit sequence and putting their name and what relation they are to who. It's very interesting, but you know, this is another one of those tangled web giallos that we have with all these different situations going on. This guy is, you know, having an affair and he's got a daughter and a wife, and the wife may be having an affair. I mean, it's a whole tangled web of stuff going on. What I like. Most about this movie is one—it's so enthralling from the beginning. Is it just had me right at the beginning? Now the the credit sequence where it's showing all the people—I was kind of lost for a little bit and like, what do I need to know? These people, but it really does pull you in from when it starts in that scene in the park, and then it morphs into at one point this courtroom drama. And you find out very quickly that court is a little bit different in Italy than it is in the United States. And that that part is just so interesting. And I'm always a fan of when these types of horror movies, you know, when you mix horror or thriller with a courtroom drama, and you can really get the attention of people without being too, you know, run-of-the-mill or too over-the-top, I really enjoy it. Uh, However, I don't think they do a very good job of concealing what's going on through the film. I think there is a little twist on what you think might happen, but I don't think it's too far off of what most people will pick up. And that is a little bit of a negative, but to me it didn't really matter in the long run. It's much more of a crime, police procedural type movie that's much lighter on the violence than we're normally seeing, even though there are a few you know, dead bodies in this one, are murder victims, and it just does have very few deaths. This isn't like a high body count. Giallo, it's not necessarily even a mystery Giallo, because like I said, it's not too hard to figure out. It's just kind of, you're just kind of there for the experience, and it's a really good, fun experience that I just enjoyed the whole time. This certainly won't be for all Giallo fans. I think if you're much more into the, you know, mystery, thriller elements. This might not necessarily be for you if you're much more into the more violent ones. Probably not for you, or the more risque ones. Probably not for you. But I'm telling you, I really liked the Bloodstained Butterfly. I came away really surprised. And, you know, of all the bloodstained geologists, you know, the geologists with bloodstained in the title, this is definitely my favorite. Now, I still have to see the blood-stained lawn, but yeah, we'll get there one day. Yeah, like I said, not for everyone, not for all Giallo fans, but if the premise and what what I've kind of described the movie as sounds cool to you, you definitely need to check it out as soon as possible. So, next up, before we get to the last year of this episode we're going to check in with Ian Urza a little bit, and Ian is a Giallo, an Italian film super fan. And he has his own blog called The Good, The Bad, and Macabre, and I will link that in the show notes. And Ian's going to give us a little bit of a history lesson on the Giallo film, kind of all the way through. And it's nice to hear that he's talking about a lot of the same things I was, because he is so entrenched in the genre. But there's also some things that Ian's going to touch on that maybe I didn't. So let's take a listen to what Ian has to say.
5: Hey, Trey Whetstone, it's Ian Urza here. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing your Giallo episodes of Screaming Through the Ages and seeing which ones you might do for your 31 Days of October reviews. Uh, But I'm going to probably give you sort of a basic overview of the genre and its evolution in this recording. Um, I'm a little sort of under the weather. I still have COVID, so I hope my voice is good enough to, uh, you know, be um acceptable (laughs) to the audience but uh yeah so here i go i just wanted to read quickly um what is a giallo by ernesto gastaldi and i actually read this when i was on dave dr shock becker's podcast when he did our top 10 giallos for an episode uh so what it says is a giallo is not a detective story it is not a thriller not a suspense movie not a horror film but it can be any one of these things and also all of these things rolled into one what sets a giallo apart from another story Two things, a difficult-to-explain event, and it's rigorously logical explanation based on the evidence and details provided in the story. The event is almost always a murder. Both in literature and cinema, the giali that pay respect to the intellect of the audience members are few in number. Often more so in the movies than in the literature, the author cheats. In the movies, the filmmaker is able to show you what he or she wants you to see, thus enabling things to be hidden. That should be in plain view, but this would simply destroy the mystery, so it is easier to simply cheat. One of the most famous cheats is in the climax of the film, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, where the protagonist suddenly remembers, you know, what he what he saw at the beginning was actually a little different. I don't want to give away a spoiler for that movie, which is what he talks about, but that's basically it. And you had things like uh, the, the yellow-covered uh, books that were murder mysteries in Italy, serving an influence you sort of Agatha Christie and Edgar Wallace type novels but you also had films like Henri Clouseau's *Diabolique*, and the German Krimi films especially uh, serving as an influence I haven't seen many of the German Krimi films a lot of them are apparently a lot like Edgar Wallace novel adaptations and that's actually what some early giallos were if you look at a movie like Double Face, for example, by Ricardo Freda, it does have Klaus Kinski and Gunther Stoll in it, who, at least Gunther Stoll, was in some crimmies, and I know that because he was also in What Have You Done to Solange, and What Have You Done to Solange is another crimmie, uh, Giallo sort of co-production, and it was also marketed as sort of an Edgar Wallace uh, adaptation, like a lot of those movies were. Um, But the, the thing is, with... With giallo movies, you 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 start in the '60s because Dario Argento, when he made Bird with the Crystal Plumage in 1970, that sort of served as the Halloween of of the genre in a way. It was the first one to have sort of a a more psychological reason for the killer doing the killing. Uh, you know, not necessarily linked to just an Inheritance, which is what most of these movies were linked to, uh, in the case, you know, similar to, you know, what you'd read in Edgar Wallace and some Agatha Christie novels usually. Uh, and Dario Argento sort of broke that, and he also focused a little bit more on male protagonists. Um, the good thing about Sergio Martino's movies, turning to him a little bit, is that he combined sort of the female fronted giallo movies with those sort of slasher elements that that argento put in his movies because before before 1970 a lot of giallo movies were not really slasher movies a lot of them especially the ones umberto Lenzi made some of the ones he made with carol baker movies like oasis of fear a quiet place to kill uh and orgasmo oasis of fear was with some different actors but anyways they're all examples of the same thing where he usually had three or four people and um, one of them is a main character, and everyone's trying to drive that person crazy to get their inheritance. Um, and they re- act more kind of like really erotic noir movies, rather than sort of murder mystery slasher movies, which is what the Giallos eventually became. So they're all kind of different. Um, and, you know, Mario Bava started the genre with a movie like the, the Girl Who Knew Too Much, a.k.a. The Evil Eye, which is basically the psycho of the genre. And then you have what he made right after blood and black lace basically being the black Christmas of of the genre. And it's in its own way. And that movie was like the first to do some really sort of cool, bloody kills, Um, not too gory, but, but certainly violent kills for the time. 1964 showed a not much actual nudity, but you do see some like, you know, transparent bathing suit through a bathtub at some point. So that was like some of the first actual nudity you could probably see in film at that time. Uh, That's my guess anyway. But the the genre definitely evolved once Argento became director, and a lot of people sort of had to follow what he did. I mean, um, um, Lindsay started making some more slasher-centric ones, such as Eyeball and uh, Seven Bloodstained Orchids, and... um. Uh, Ricardo Freyda actually had a really sort of hard time uh, in, attempting that with the movie The Iguana with a Tongue of Fire where it's it's a fun movie but the story is ridiculous and he basically treats every character like a a murder suspect not, as and not just a character, which is the biggest problem with that movie. If you go back and look at Double Face, which he made before Argento even had an impact on the genre, it's probably a better uh, example of his work and his craft. Uh, and then the genre even went through even more sort of, uh, you know, variations later on. I mean, the giallo genre was not dead until you know, sort of the sort of the uh, mid '90s, I guess, would be the the time when it, it really sort of stopped. Um, I think if you're talking about like the last sort of real giallo movie, it would probably be somewhere around the time *Lamberto, Baba, Lamberto Baba's Body Puzzle* was made, and that. That brings me to, like, you know, in the late 80s, you had Lamberto Bava and Ruggiero Diodato, both making a lot of giallos. Uh, Diodato made Phantom of Death, Dial Help, I think, was another one, and The Washing Machine, which was made in the 90s, which is a little more erotic thriller than giallo, but I I would still put it in there uh, just because of what it focuses on. I think giallo movies have to have... Either a psychological mystery or some kind of uh, murder investigation. As long as it has one of those things, I feel okay calling it a giallo movie. Whereas, and then, Lamberto Bava, in the 80s, made movies like uh, A Blade in the Dark. That was a little earlier. uh, And that sort of bridges the giallo and the slasher, in a way. um, Just because of the fact that it takes place all in one location. And it feels just as much like a slasher as it does the Giallo, but he also made uh, You'll Die at Midnight, uh, What, am I, what are some others I'm thinking of, Delirium, Photos of Gloria, or Photos of Gioia, if you're doing the Italian uh, translation, uh, and obviously Body Puzzle, like I mentioned before, but all of these had different things, because uh, specifically Phantom of Death and Body Puzzle, you actually know who the killer is, but there's still an investigation from the police side of things in Phantom of Death, and then in... Uh, what was the other one? Uh, Body Puzzle. In Body Puzzle, you see the killer's face, but the police investigation tells you more about who he is throughout the film. You, you literally don't know anything about him until the police are trying to figure out who he is and sort of get the files on him and everything. So there's still a mystery element to it. And movies like uh, Torso, for example, um, and of course Mario Bava's Bay of Blood sort of bridge the gap between Giallo and Slasher. Uh, torso did it by having a second half that focused less on investigation characters all in one location, a sort of final girl type narrative, which there's a good twist with who that actually ends up being. Cause you think it could be one of two people. And then the other one, the other part of that is the kill. The, the characters don't know who's doing the killing until a certain point, just like in slasher movies where the characters don't really find out what's going on until way late in the movie. Uh, and, and Bay of blood, Bay of Blood is just a really high body count movie with very little of an investigative narrative. Um, there's really not much of a mystery to it in some ways because things just keep happening and then you've got that like 20 25 minute sequence where those people show up on the uh, uh, on the island uh, you know in that one one place these sort of teenage young adult kids and that that sort of served as a basis for the slasher uh, as well. You know how Roger Ebert always called it, you know, dead teenager movies. That's kind of what those characters serve a purpose for, is is just to be there and die in, in bad ways. So that in itself was another influence as well. Um, and that's, I, I just, yeah, I just wanted to give you sort of a basic uh, overview and just talk about, you know, mention a few movie titles in there. So that's uh, that's what I got to add to this, but I hope, uh, you know, your shows and everything on this go really well.
0: Thanks for that, Ian. I really appreciate it. And I don't think this will be the last time on these episodes that we'll be hearing from Ian, but more on that next time. Okay, let's move into 1972.
3: A girl. I was just using her as an example. Who is Solange? What happened to her? Nothing! What have you done to Solange? Well, she, she killed him that? the same way as the others. Have you any clues, Inspector? This is the third murder in three weeks. Is it true there that Rosania is having an affair with Colonel Sexton He just isn't a killer and far less a sex maniac. Those girls know what it's all about, for sure. Only 16 and surrounded by secret boyfriends, petty jealousies, orgies, and lesbian games. What have you done to Solange? What's all this about a priest? One of Elizabeth's ideas. She kept having nightmares about the murder, reliving it over and over again. There! Oh, what have you done to the lungs? So
0: 1972 is the only year. That's bigger than 1971 as far as giallos are concerned. I mean, we're looking at 33 giallos on this list. Now in 1971, I read off 30. These two years are the epicenter. This is where giallo was at its highest craze, at least as far as like production. There were still a lot of good ones that would come out after this, but this is the height for volume of giallos. So let's go ahead and go down this list and look through some of these. First off, we have the Red-Headed Corpse, which I have not seen, but sounds kind of interesting. I might be checking that one out. We've got the Case of the Bloody Iris, which is a good one. And that one is directed by Giuliano Carnameo. And that was the only giallo he did, but it was a pretty interesting and good giallo. He also did some of the Sartana Western movies. Then you have another Fulci Giallo with Don't Torture a Duckling. I've never been a huge fan of this one. Like I had stated before, I'm not huge on a lot of Fulci stuff, but Don't Torture a Duckling's okay. It's just never been my favorite. You've got Who Killed the Prosecutor and Why. Sounds pretty straightforward. Death Walks at Midnight, which is another Ercole film, and the pseudo-sequel to Death Walks on High Heels. You've got a pair of Spanish Giallos in high tension and an open tomb, an empty coffin. You've got My Dear Killer. Spirits of Death. You've got another Martino film with Your Vice is a Locked Room and only I Have the Key. And then we also had later from Martino All the Colors of the Dark, which is in my you know how I had a favorite in 71. I think All the Colors of the Dark is much Better than Your Vice is a Locked Room and I Have the Key. That's just my personal preference. You've got The French Sex Murders, Death Falls Lightly, Smile Before Death, which I hadn't heard of until recently when it got a release from Arrow Video. So I'm excited to check that one out. You've got What Have You Done to Solange, which is one of the best non Argento Bava Giallos. I really think so. What Have You Done to Solange is not for the faint of heart, I would say. It's a pretty rough movie in places, but this is Massimo D'Alamano, who had done Black Veil for Lisa, and would go on to do What Have They Done to Your Daughters. And I love the, you know, What Have You Done to Solange and What Have They Done to Your Daughters. I love both of those. I think Solange is a really good one. Like I said, it's not going to be for everyone. That one's much sleazier than a lot of these ones, I think. But Solange is really good. It's one of those, you know, it's at a girls' school, so you know you've got me pulled in from the beginning. You've got Knife of Ice, which is another one of those Lenzy giallos. have got Eye in the Labyrinth, Murder Mansion, The Killers on the Phone. That one sounds kind of cool. Tropic of Cancer, that one sounds even cooler. Love and Death in the Garden of the Gods, I've been meaning to get to for a while, but haven't yet. The Dead or Alive, well, that sounds a little contradictory, but um, nonetheless. So Sweet, So Dead. Delirium, now this is not to be confused with Lamberto Bava's Delirium, which would come out later in the 80s. This is a different one, I have not seen this one yet. And then you have, which is what I think... Lindsay's best Giallo with seven bloodstained orchids. I really do like that one. Um, that one's certainly worth checking out. The Crimes of the Black Cat, I have not seen. Naked Girl Killed in the Park, that sounds also very explanatory. I'm sure some of these that I saw didn't have English titles. I'm guessing they never had English releases. So some of these are just straight translations of the Italian. And I can't remember if I had said that previously, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that was just a straight interpretation of the Italian. The Two Faces of Fear, The Weapon, The Hour, The Motive, which I need to check out. I think that one is on Arrow as well recently. You've got The Cat and Heat. And then this one's interesting. AAA, Masseuse, Good Looking Offers, Her Services very interesting. Um, (laughs) And then you've got the Red Queen Kill Seven Times, which I think is a fantastic giallo. And if you're not into the typical, stereotypical what you think a giallo would be, I think the Red Queen Kill Seven Times is a good place to get in as well. If you're not getting in with Argento or something like that, I think that's a good way to ease you into it as well. It's a very good mystery. It's setting kind of a gothic setting. It's a really good one. And that one's by Miraglia, who also did The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave. So, Red Queen kills seven times, very underrated Giallo. Definitely check that one out. That brings us to the first time view for this year, which was Who Saw Her Die? Now there's something extremely interesting about Who Saw Her Die, and this isn't directed by Aldo Lotto. Let me set this up first, actually. So I was giving Lotto another chance here, and this one, the synopsis reads, Giallo Thriller about a child killer roaming the streets of Venice. The family of the latest victim begin their own investigation, soon finding they are in way over their heads. The killer now begins to target those who have discovered too much. Now if that sounds a little familiar to you, it should, because that is basically the setup of Don't Look Now by Nicholas Rogue, which would come out a year later. And is essentially a giallo. More on that in 1973. But yes, it is very similar to Don't Look Now. And this came out before it. You know, there is, it's set in Venice. There is a child who dies early on in the film. There's a child murderer, loose in the town. Now, who saw her die? It's, I really like the slow build and the pace at the beginning of this movie. But at some point, I just lost track of characters. I lost track of, you know, who was who, and I really stopped caring. I think it does do a good job early on in getting you into this world and finding out what happened, introducing you to the little girl, and you basically have a father here that's working in Venice, and him and his wife are estranged. I don't think they're completely you know, divorced or anything like that, but they are estranged, and they have a daughter, and he's watching his daughter here, and basically just lets her go out and play, and I know it's a very different time, but this has consequences when he loses her one time, can't find her, he's running around asking all the kids where she is, well, turns out they find her in the river, and she's been murdered, so his wife comes to meet him for everything, and Honestly, the one thing I did like is usually in these situations we just see it put a complete strain on marriages and destroy marriages when we see a lot of these horror movies like this. This time around, it actually brings them back together for whatever that's worth. But um, I think it's very harrowing in the first 30 minutes or so of this movie, especially when you see what happened to the little girl. But then, again, it gets bogged down, it's very slow moving, you lose track of characters, and it's really just all over the place. I do think it has a lot of style, and I think it has a lot of the case of style over substance. Sometimes that's enough for me. In this one, it just wasn't enough. I really liked the way it began, and then it just lost steam for me. I don't think the ending makes any sense at all, either. You can argue with me about that, and I would appreciate if someone would explain this to me if you do get it, but I was just baffled by the ending of this film and who the actual killer was. I had no idea. Anyway, that was Who Saw Her Die. I think it's fine. I think it has merit to it. Um, I think there's some cool stuff at the beginning. There's some cool stuff woven throughout it, sure, but... If you want to watch a movie like this and you want to see a better one, just watch Don't Look Now. I think this is probably still on the board for a lot of Giallo fans, and, I mean, it's not the bottom of the barrel for sure, in my opinion. I like this a lot better than Short Night of Glass Dolls, but that's just me, and I do need to give that one a second chance one day and see if I like it better. But that's going to do it for this action-packed episode, the first part of the Giallo Extravaganza that I will be running in October here. Come back in two weeks to catch that and come back in another week for a bonus episode. You still have some time, probably when I'm recording this to send in a voicemail or a recording and be a part of the show. I also want to take this time to quickly plug the Phantom Video podcast over with Nathan Bartlebaugh and Dave Becker, which I am on, and Every once in a while we'll get together and we'll talk about physical media and that type of stuff, and you can find that over on the Phantom Galaxy podcast feed. You can follow the podcast over on Twitter at Screaming Ages, and over in the Facebook group, that's Screaming Through the Ages over there, and you can follow throughout the entire month of October where I will be doing 31 days of Halloween reviews over there. You can find all the episodes housed on ScreamingThroughTheAges.com. And as always, I'd appreciate it if you liked the podcast, share it with your friends, share it with other people that you think might like it. I always appreciate that, and I appreciate everyone who listens, and hopefully you're enjoying this Giallo episode and the next one I've got coming. I really am loving putting these together and coming up with different things to talk about. Speaking of, there's going to be a lot of things to talk about in the next episode. I will be covering the rest of the years, so from 1973 to modern times, and all of those I won't be doing one by one, but the next few years at least I will be. I've got plenty of more first-watch reviews coming up, as well as topics that I want to discuss as far as our Giallo's horror films, is something like Suspiria a Giallo. What's the role of police in Giallo films? Maybe even talking about Ed Widge Fennec, if we get to that. So, a whole lot of topics on the table, a whole lot of movies to talk about. And might have a couple giveaways going on too, so keep posted on social media. I will be giving away two Arrow Blu-rays, and the way you can get entries for those are, I will you know put your name in for as many of these as you do, But if you send in your voicemail or your recording over to me at screamingthroughtheages at yahoo.com or call in at 740 297 6556, you can get an entry that way. You can also go over and retweet my post for these episodes over on Twitter. Or you could just reach out on Facebook or Twitter or wherever. Send me an email and tell me what some of your favorite Giallos are and what you love about them, or anything like that. So, just basically spreading the word about the podcast, and, you know, conversating about giallos. So, you do any of that, and I'll push you in for an entry to win one of two Arrow Video Giallo Blu-rays. The two that I have to give away are What Have You Done to Solange? and The Red Queen Kill Seven Times. Those are two of the ones that I really like, that I think are underrated, and maybe not everyone has so if you're interested in those please follow those steps and you can get entered to win one of those and that'll ship to the U.S. only so sorry to my friends in the Great White North and internationally it's just too much for me to take on that right now but until next time please keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson